You're listening to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast, episode 65, hosted by me, Robert Plotkin. Today I'm going to be speaking with Ariel Garten, a psychotherapist, neuroscientist, mom, TEDx speaker, and host of the Untangle podcast. Ariel is also the founder of the successful tech startup, Muse. You can find out more about Ariel at ariel-garten.com. I'm extremely pleased to welcome Ariel Garten to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast. In the interview that you're about to hear with Ariel Garten, you'll hear her talk uh, very extensively about the ways in which her company's Muse device provides you with real-time feedback about your own internal state while you're meditating using sound as a stimulus. For today's tip, I'd like to give some suggestions for using external stimuli while you're meditating not necessarily for the same reason or to achieve the same purpose as the Muse device does, but to aid your meditating in other ways. One way that you can do this is to experiment with how much you keep your eyes open or closed. Many people meditate regularly with their eyes closed, and that can work well for you. Uh, Certain traditions, like in Zen Buddhism, The eyes are kept open, interestingly enough, to help protect against getting too drowsy or sleepy or falling too easily into daydreaming. Typically, the eyes are kept somewhat closed, a little bit open, with the gaze being soft. And what I find interesting about this is an example of using some external stimulus you know, some visual stimulus in that case, to provide your eyes and your mind with something to focus on a little bit, but not too much to aid you in paying attention to yourself. And what's interesting, it may seem like a contradiction at first, is that a little bit of attention on the external can help you to maintain focus on the internal. Just some other examples, and you can experiment with lots of different things, is to walk or move or sway back and forth, stand. I've sometimes tapped myself gently on the legs, not too hard, but just a little bit. There's so many ways you can experiment with this. And as always, use this as an opportunity to try things out and see what works best for you. By best, I mean what kinds of use of movement or or external stimuli are helpful to you in supporting you in being in a state where you are present as much as possible in waking up out of the wandering mind state as frequently as possible so it may seem like a contradiction to do things that might bring you a little bit out of the internal focus. But as with everything, we're looking for a middle path and a balance that can help us in the meditation practice and experience. So I hope that that's useful and try things out and see what works for you. And I think you're really going to enjoy the upcoming interview with Ariel Garten. Hi, Ariel, and welcome to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast. 
Hello, it's a pleasure to be here. I'd like to just jump right in and ask you to introduce people to your product, Muse, and just tell them what it is, how people would use it, and what its benefits are. I definitely want to talk about your background because it's very varied and interesting, but I thought we'd start right out by talking about Muse. Okay. Well, first of all, I have to say it's awesome to be on a podcast about technology for mindfulness since this is what we build. So it's really exciting to be talking about Muse with you. For people who don't know what Muse is, it is a brain-sensing headband that helps you meditate. It's a clinical-grade EEG, and it tracks your brain activity during meditation and gives you real-time feedback to know when you're in focused attention and when your mind has wandered. I know a little bit about it. I wonder for people out there who are meditators, let's say meditators for a long time, and may be wondering why would they need or want this? What benefits does it provide above and beyond the just traditional practice of meditation? So first I'll describe a little bit more about what it is so you can get more of an idea. Muse is basically like a Fitbit that tracks your movement or a heart rate monitor that tracks your heart rate. But this is a little slim little device that you wear on your forehead. It's kind of like a pair of glasses and it tracks your brain while you meditate. And the metaphor we use is your mind is like the weather. So during a focused attention meditation, when you're thinking or distracted, you actually hear it as stormy. Muse translates your brain activity into guiding sounds. So you Here your mind is stormy, and as you guide yourself to quiet, focused attention, that quiets the storm. So during your meditation, you're getting real-time feedback on when your mind is wondering, thinking, distracted versus when you're focused. You get real-time feedback during the experience, and then after the fact, you get charts, graphs, scores, data, stuff that shows you moment by moment what your brain was doing and lets you actually track and see your progress over time. So if you're an experienced meditator who's used to sitting in a focused attention meditation, observing the process of your thoughts, observing when your thoughts begin to wander, and then knowing like you do in your focused attention meditation that you say, oh, my mind is wandering. I'm choosing to bring it back. What Muse is doing is it's basically acting like a mirror in your meditation. It's giving you this new lens or new insight to use to watch your wandering mind and to become much sharper and much more acutely honed, aka honing your metacognition, your ability to watch your thoughts, and becoming acutely honed on when your mind is actually wandering, and then being able to very quickly return it. So if you think about the attentional loop, the noticing that your mind is wandering, and then choosing to return it, that's the attentional loop, it's kind of like the bench press at the gym. That's kind of like the workout of your meditation, the noticing and returning. And in a typical meditation, you might be wandering for one, three, five minutes. With Muse, you know instantly that your mind has wandered. And so you can Mm -hmm. instantly return your attention back to your breath. And so you're becoming very, very acutely aware of your wanderings and very quickly able to return them, able to get more of that attentional loop practice within your meditation. It's very interesting. And anyone who's engaged in this type of meditation, of course, has had that experience, it's extremely frequent of mind wandering and then at some point noticing that your mind has been wandering. And the at some point is important because, as you said, that might be a second, a minute, an hour. And we've all had the experience of not knowing when that when <laughs> noticing, that yeah. right? We said it's called waking up or you know, noticing uh, that, that it's occurred. So you're saying this, the sound, you know, so the hearing that this, the, the sound becomes more stormy acts as a kind of a trigger to help you, nudge you towards noticing that exactly. your mind has, has, has wandered more. 
Exactly. And as you are nudged to notice, you're then building the skill of really understanding and noticing when your mind wanders. And so when you practice without muse, you realize that you've actually become much more effective at this practice of noticing and returning, which is really the core of your focused attention practice. And so you get both the cueing in real time and then you get the graph after the fact. So in meditation, we're you know, reflecting upon our experience, having the ability to reflect upon our thoughts, feelings, sensations, et cetera. So when you look at the graph afterwards, you then get to see what your brain was doing. You can reflect back on all of those wanderings, begin to notice the things that were pulling you away and again, strengthen your metacognition and your, your awareness. And then you're actually able to see the progress that you've made. So a lot of people find it very interesting and very insightful to see how their brain changes from day to day and to use that as another level of reflection. How is my practice today versus the day before? Because now I have this you know, new mirror, new graph or mm. new chart that I, can, that I can use as a trigger to my self-reflection. And you can really see how you've improved, which for all of us is highly motivating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've got a, a few different questions about this. You said, if I understood you correctly, that that process of noticing and returning is a kind of flexing of the muscle and that the more frequently you can do it, the more you're flexing it and the more you're strengthening this ability to notice. I want to, it may be a little bit of devil's advocate, but just a little bit of questioning about how that works. I could imagine someone wondering, well, if the external trigger is playing at least part of the role of helping me notice that my mind is wandering, am I relying less on my own mind? And is that to some extent helping, not helping me practice the, the act of the initial noticing as much? So in the same way as looking in a mirror helps you learn more about your face and how it works mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. you know everything about your body in the same way that any anything that guides you to put your attention to something mm. helps enhance your learning of it. So too does the triggering of the sound cue you. The triggering of the sound becomes a thing that teaches your brain what to look at. When you ring a bell for Pavlov's dog and he salivates, you know, you, you are t- teaching the system. You're not saying, oh, well, now it's, I'm going down a tangent here. But in, you know, the key to any biofeedback is that it inherently and implicitly teaches you. So it teaches you what to pay attention to. It teaches you implicitly how to do this. I would assume also, and, and tell me if this is right from, from your design and then study of the system, that the immediacy of the feedback plays a role there. Yes, the immediacy is key. So your brain is immediately cued, and so you immediately notice, and then you're you know immediately attentive. And that act of being attentive you know, gives your brain a little rush of neurotransmitter and strengthens your attention, brings your attention to something. And once you bring your attentional resources to something, you've brought your mind to it, you've brought yourself to it. So, you know, it's not like this is a thing that just passively is happening to you. It is asking you to bring yourself mm. and your attention of all of you mm-hmm. to this moment in the present moment to your experience. And then as the sound is changing, that's giving you more real-time feedback about whether and how your your mind is changing. And it's interesting that you mentioned the the charts, you know, because I was thinking when you were first talking about how the the sounds work, you know, that's one sensory mode, which I I personally find find sound really helpful for me in meditating in, in other ways. I often use water sounds or other kinds of sounds that I've experimented with to work well for me in terms of striking a balance between helping me 
focused, but not taking up too much of my attention. In any case, the, the charts are then visual. Tell us a little bit about that and how, well, they're both visual, but they're also after the fact. And you talked about reflecting based on the charts. Talk a little bit about how that works within the mind and the benefits that the visual aspect has. So after your meditation, you see a graph that shows you what your brain was doing over the course of that meditation. The axis is rated so that active mind is at the top and calm, focused mind is at the bottom. Mm -hmm. So what you actually see is like a little spike every time your mind wanders and then a trough. So the spike comes back down towards zero as you return your attention to your breath. So each of those little spikes actually represents the wandering of your mind. Mm. And so over time, so initially when you do it, you're seeing those spikes and you're often able to go back and reflect and say like, oh, you know, this was the time when the door opened. Okay, now now I can mm-hmm. see what that did to my mind. Or this was the time when I wandered into that, you know, frustrating thought, right? Mm-hmm. You know, that's my bugaboo. That's another set of reflections upon that. And then over time, what you see is the graph spends more and more time close to the zero and in the calm zone. And you actually are typically able to track the, the change or the progress in someone's practice and see that over time you end up getting less and less of those mind wanderings and more and more time in the calm zone. It's highly engaging for somebody to see the way that their practice shifts from day to day. Mm. And so it becomes a great tool for both motivation as well as self-reflection. Yeah, I can see that because otherwise, I mean, I know from experience, it can be hard just based on memory to see the change and improvement. It's certainly long-term, it's possible, but I can see how seeing the graphs could make it easier to see shorter-term improvements and trends over time than just relying on your own memory. Yeah, and it works really well for experts who are you know, intermediate or expert meditators to give you a new lens. It works also amazingly well for beginners. So we have lots of people who have never meditated before in their life who know meditation is good for them, who might have sat down and tried once or twice and they're like, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing here. (laughs) And muses the thing that really shows them what they're supposed to be doing, quote unquote, supposed to be doing in the context of a very specific focused attention practice. And so it makes that whole kind of intangible, uncomprehensible process of meditation really straightforward and tangible to be, to a beginner. You know, when the sound picks up, that means your mind has wandered. That's your cue to try to make the sound get quiet by focusing mm-hmm. your attention on the breath. And then after the fact, they're given all of these guides and support that help them understand what their meditation practice is, how often to do it, what it looks like. And so it becomes this very easy way to establish a practice. You know, it makes me wonder about a feature which may, may not be really possible or feasible to implement, which is for a long meditation, you talk about being able to look back and say, oh, that's when such and such happened. I can imagine myself not remembering, but wondering you know, what was going on at this period <laughs> yeah. when my mind was really this. I wish I knew what was happening externally or internally. At the, Is there any way in which someone can do that? Yeah, we don't have a feature for, you know, tagging particular moments or there's no sound recorded from the room, thankfully. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) No, that's I want. And I can imagine if if people were to try tagging it, they they would be taking themselves outside of the meditation experience. Great. Well, I'm sure we'll talk more about Muse and how it works, but I do want to ask you to just let people know a little bit about your own background and experience that you bring to this because... It is quite varied. And, you know, from what I know of you, makes you basically the perfect person <laughs> to have <laughs> developed this 
and I'm sure people will be interested to, to learn about what your, what your background is. Sure. So my background is varied as well as my co-founders, which I think together made the three of us the perfect people to create this. Mm -hmm. I come initially from a background in art and design and creating art experiences that shift the way people think about the world. So I was fascinated from the world from an emotional perspective as well as a cognitive perspective and really felt that art shifts the way that you see and feel. And so in Muse, what you end up with is this really beautiful experience, this really very human artistic experience of hearing your mind and hearing yourself. Mm. I also have a background in neuroscience. I worked in neuroscience research labs and began in 2003 collaborating with Dr. Steve Mann. He's one of the inventors of the wearable computer. He's the guy who basically made Google Glass before Google did. Yes, and I remember Steve Mann. Well, he's been around for a very long time, yeah. Yeah, and he continues to innovate and create things. It's amazing. So he had this early brain computer interface system that we were using to create concerts where you'd make music with your mind. And from there, I got together with Chris Amini, who's one of Steve's master students. He helped him create basically that initial Google Glass type prototype. And he's an incredible engineer, artist, and spiritualist. And Trevor Coleman, who's a friend of mine who was a practicing Buddhist at the time. The three of us got together to try to figure out the best way to use this brain computer interface technology and ultimately recognized that it was not to try to control computers with their mind, as we thought it would be. It was to actually help people meditate, to help people mm -hmm. know what was going on inside their brain during this incredibly important practice. And we recognized that if we could use this technology as a way to get more people to meditate, we would invariably have been doing something meaningful for the world. Mm. That's amazing. And so I would assume that before even launching the first version of the product, you put a lot of scientific groundwork into it to talk a little bit about what you did you know, to do your best to make sure that this was grounded in good science. And then I'm really curious to know what you've done to update that over time, you know, as people have been using it in their real lives. Yeah. So there's currently over 200 published articles using Muse published in, you know, amazing journals like Frontiers in Neuroscience and PLOS One, really top-tier journals. And they're all by third-party researchers who have been using Muse either as a clinical-grade EEG to do neuroscience research or as a meditation tool to, you know, validate the use of the Muse meditation experience that we've created across multiple different domains. So when we first started, you know, we worked closely with both neuroscientists and top meditators to try to create an algorithm that would identify what focused attention versus mind wandering look like. And it was a difficult thing to do because as soon as you try to ask mm -hmm. somebody what state they're in, you've invariably changed the state. Mm -hmm. um, so we had to create a set of experiments that would unearth somebody's inherent state without having that shift or change. So we created an algorithm initially with experts and then with beginners and novices, because a beginner and a novice mind looks very different at the beginning of a meditation practice than an expert. Mm -hmm. You can't simply say, well, this is what the expert looks like, and this is what your mind should be doing. And, you know, validated across hundreds and hundreds and then thousands of people. We now have over 100 million minutes of meditation, and we were able to look back over time at those hundreds million minutes of meditation and understand, you know, the brain shifts and changes across individuals, across population. And in combination with researchers at top universities have been able to, you know, pull out really fascinating insights into the brain. So this has been a science-based venture from the beginning and continues to offer better and better science as we have more and more tools as, as time goes on. 
Is there anything particularly surprising or unexpected, let's say, that you've learned from this research? I, I, I assume you've learned a lot that's confirmed pre-existing knowledge or understanding about meditation, but anything that really took you by surprise? Yeah, there are a number of things. So we were able to look at brain changes and we were able to identify a number of markers for brain age, but we looked at alpha peak frequency and we saw the way that alpha peak frequency changed decade by decade with different individuals. And that's something that has never been seen in the literature before. So we're actually able to create a marker for brain age that was that we could see how it changed decade by decade and, and suggested what the age of one's brain might be just based on this marker. We've also seen it, you know, used in awesome contexts. So Mayo Clinic, for example, just published a study using news with breast cancer patients awaiting surgery. And it demonstrated that using news in this population was able to decrease the stress of the cancer care process, improve quality of life, and decrease fatigue. So mm. You know, it's known that meditation can be used in these contexts, but for us, it was incredibly amazing to see that our tool could have the power to be implemented in a really simple and clean way and allow people to do good science. Because part of the problem when you're using meditation inside of a research study is you never know when people are meditating. Mm -hmm. You know, you go in and you try to teach people to meditate, and then you hope that your subjects go away and are doing their meditation daily for the appointed amount of time. Mm -hmm. But with Muse, when we run a clinical study, we have a back end that allows the clinician to track the patients and actually see how much time they've put into meditation, what their depth of meditation was. So for the first time, you can actually see in a meditation study what the dose-dependent response was. So in our studies or in you know, our partner studies, they can see that somebody who has meditated less often doesn't get as much of the benefit that they're looking mm -hmm. for within the study as somebody who, who meditates more often. I'm sure that there is then some, I don't want to say optimal point, but you, what you just mentioned is that there is some increased benefit with increased use. Are you finding then some point of diminishing returns or anything else there that might be surprising or interesting to people? There hasn't been enough studies to really indicate that. Typically, the studies are done at 10 minutes a day or 10 to 20 minutes a day. In the existing literature, when you're looking at somebody in a shamatha-based practice or focused attention practice, it's typically 20 minutes a day. Our research partners, like Baycrest study, was 10 minutes a day, and there they saw over six weeks improvement in the Stroop task. So somebody who meditated for 10 minutes a day with Muse over six weeks saw a 50 millisecond improvement in their ability to choose the color or the word in the Stroop task, so improvement mm -hmm. in cognitive function, mm -hmm. decrease in stress, and then a decrease in self-reported symptoms like headache, pain, and nausea. There's another study looking at 10 to 20 minutes, but people just tend to, you know, use this relatively low cutoff point of 10 or 20 minutes within their studies to ensure that people comply. Right. I don't think people have done studies for, you know, 45 minutes or an hour. And then I'm also curious, you know, like when you mentioned the breast cancer patients as an example, have you developed or do you use different types of software for different situations or is it all the same meditation software that you described at the beginning where people are using this to observe themselves? Is there anything targeted in the software for specific situations or is it generic? So in all of these situations that I've mentioned, it's all the same core muse experience, which is what I've described. Wow. Um, I should also mention that, you know, this is not a medical device. It's not intended to use or, you know, diagnose right. anything. <laughs> right, right, right. It can help improve quality of life while living with certain conditions, as can meditation, but is not used as treatment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
that is surprising uh, to me that this uh, same system, you know, that is designed as a meditation aid, if you, if you will, a meditation accelerator, you know, would have some of these or could have some of these other significant benefits in specific situations. It's great. Just like meditation. I mean, meditation sure. seems to have, you know, such broad application, whether you're looking at a player on a baseball field or a person in a hospital, it seems to benefit both. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm wondering, you know, now that you've been doing this for a while, have all of this additional data, what are the current and, and next steps? You know, what are the new directions to be turning in? I'm not asking you to reveal any confidential business plans of the company, you know, but I'm sure that as you learn more with this, you think about new directions. I'm sure at the same time, you know, and I know many people in the, in the mindful technology world struggle with the tension between adding new features and keeping what was the essential simplicity of their original product, which contributes to it. So I wonder if you could speak to any of that. Sure. And it's definitely attention. And you know, we have over 100,000 users that use Muse regularly in their life. And whenever you change something, <laughs> you, you, yes. have to, you have to keep every user in mind. The product that I described initially was the original Muse. And, you know, with everything that we'd learned about the mind and then the body and how it changes in meditation, last year we came out with Muse 2. So Muse 2 has additional sensors to give you real-time feedback on your heart, your breath, and your body in addition to your mind. So we're now able to see a complete picture of the individual during their meditation. Last year, we started to bring in guided content, and now we have hundreds of meditations by dozens of top teachers. So in addition to the core muse experience, which I described where you can hear the sound of your mind while you meditate, we now have a separate section called guided in which we have... We basically say if there's something that comes up in your life, we have a meditation for that. Mm. So there's a collection for travel or you, you know or stuck on the bus or late for something, there's a meditation for that. There's a collection for leadership, for performance. I use the example of baseball because we actually did a project with Kansas City Royals and our whole baseball collection is also in there. Relationships, stress, um, happiness, sleep, and on and on. Mm. So you can listen to the guided meditations you know, whenever you need them. You can just go into the section and find the right meditation for you at that moment. Or you can use it in combination with the headband and you can actually track what your heart, your breath, and your mind are doing during your meditation, during guided meditation, and then you're able to see that data after the fact. So that's been an incredible step forward mm -hmm. for us to be able to combine guided meditations plus the neuron biofeedback that we've been working with. Wow, that's amazing. I, I was wondering when you were talking about the original design and the choice of sound and the you know st more stormy sounds corresponding to monkey mind, you know, distracted mind, calmer sounds corresponding to a, a calmer mind. First, I assume that that mapping from one to the other was probably not very simple. It was probably, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I'm just guessing, you know, from software development yes. perspective to come up with something that would make intuitive sense to someone listening to it, I, I would assume took a lot of, a lot of work. So kudos to you for that. And I wonder if there, if you've ever thought about or have done, you know, made any changes to that, to the sound output of it, 
to make it more effective in some way or different or better for different people or anything like that? Yeah. So we initially started with the notion that your mind is like the weather. And actually the brilliance of this metaphor came from Trevor, one of the co-founders. You know, we tried to think about what was the intuitive way that people would understand what goes on in their mind because we don't have a model that we currently use. You know, we don't have a thing that we were like, oh yeah, that's like our mind. And so as we tried to think about what the soundscape would be, we recognize that your mind is like the weather is actually a metaphor that we talk about. You say, you know, Mm -hmm. your mind is stormy or you've got brain fog or you're feeling, you know, kind of cloudy. And so we use that as the initial soundscape. And then from there, there's now five different soundscapes on the app. So there's an ambient soundscape, a city park. So mm. it can feel busy like the cars and the sounds in the park or quiet like a peaceful park. Uh, my favorite is the rainforest. And mm. so when your mind is wandering, you hear heavy rains. And then as your mind gets quiet, you hear just the gentle twitters of the rainforest and little trickles of leaves. Mm. So there's five different soundscapes. And so you can choose the soundscape that works right for you. And we're always working on building additional soundscapes and audio experiences. And in the heart experience, what you're actually hearing is the beating of your heart like the beating of a drum. And it's this beautiful, beautiful experience that actually lets you hear every single beat of your own heart like a drum. Mm. And you can hear when your heart speeds up and you can hear when your heart slows down and you start to tune your interoception your ability to sensitively understand what's going on inside your own body. So we're able to use these metaphors of sound in, in like really beautiful ways. Mm, that's amazing. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad I asked. And I know that different people respond better or worse to different types of sound, you know, which is, which is why I asked. And it sounds like you've put um, a lot of thought into that. You know, where can people uh, find out about Muse, more about you, about not just the product, but the research and the science side of things for those who are interested? Sure. So you can find out more about Muse at choosemuse.com. We have some of our research studies up there, probably, you know, our 10 favorite ones, but there's lots more. If you're interested in neuroscience and meditation and where they intersect, when some of our research partners I also have on the podcast, I host a podcast called Untangle, where we talk to neuroscientists and meditation folk, many of whom use Muse in their research. And so you can learn more there. And if you want to follow me, I'm Ariel's Musings on Instagram and Ariel.Garten on Twitter. That's great. I wonder if there's any thought, suggestion, a practice that you'd like to leave people with, you know, maybe if they are just a beginning meditator and looking to start out, you know, what, what, is, what is something you could uh, leave people with today that might be beneficial to them in their own lives? So one of the practices that I've been really enjoying lately is a meditation on love. And what I will do is I will feel a sensation of love in my heart. And if I'm having difficulty feeling that, feeling a love in my heart, I'll imagine somebody that I love. Could be your pet, your mom, your kid, your partner. And I'll feel that like warmth. I'll see them in front of me and I'll feel that warmth coming from me to them. And then I'll insert a mirror and I'll feel that warmth reflected back on me. And I'll feel it in my heart and I'll let that feeling of love and warmth grow in my heart. And then I will take that feeling of love and direct it around parts of my body. So if I have tension in my shoulders, I bring the sensation of love to my shoulders. And I just let my shoulders bask in and feel that love and know that they are just so safe in that love. And then I'll start to feel them release and let go. And I'll bring it into my stomach and down my legs and 
back into my heart and just let that feeling of love grow and do the healing that it does in all of our bodies. It may not be the most beginner practice, but it's one that I've been loving right now. Oh, that's great. Thank you. And I'm sure that that anyone hearing it right now, maybe could get a little bit of a sense in the moment of what, what that practice feels like. So thank you. Thanks very much. I really enjoyed having you on the podcast. Thanks so much for letting us know about Muse, about all of your ongoing work, uh, about the research you're doing and how you're helping people. I really enjoyed having you on the Technology for Mindfulness podcast, Ariel. My pleasure. It was a complete pleasure to be here and to be here with you and your whole audience. Oh, thanks so much. Bye now. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us for this Technology for Mindfulness podcast with me, Robert Plotkin, and today's guest, Ariel Garten a psychotherapist, neuroscientist, mom, TEDx speaker, and host of the Untangle podcast. She's also the co-founder of Muse. You can find out more about Muse at choosemuse.com. If you liked today's episode, please subscribe, rate, and review, and share the episode with your friends. And don't forget to also check out our blog at our newly revamped website at technologyformindfulness.com for information and tips about science, technology, and mindfulness. You'll also be able to find out about our Tap Into Mindfulness course for helping you to take control of your smartphone. I'm Robert Plotkin, and I'll join you next time on the Technology for Mindfulness podcast with the co-founder and CEO of Daily Aloha, Amy Gidden. Thank you.